As part of the exhibition Sight and Sound, Sonic Art is Ecological Practice at McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery. Liquid Architecture was invited to stage a project critically responding to themes of sonic art, acoustic ecology, field recording, deep listening, and spatial sound, all understood in the context of profound environmental crisis and instability. Curator Joel Stern invited A. Henley, Sen Ya, Dembi Sodol, and Tina Stefanu to collectively realize the project Unheard Relations comprising of experimental audio works and a long-form polyvocal essay and script. Drawn to convergences, Tina Stefano works with a wide range of collaborators to hear the voice of tangled things. Her piece for Unheard Relations assembles connections between an analogue telephone out of Greek peasant food, 250 metres of string, local orthodox chants, sonic supermarkets, vocalisations of artist as ape, and on a boat, Grandmother sings You're the Voice by John Farnham while she encircles a Nietzschean figure. This is a podcast from Liquid Architecture. Support Liquid Architecture's podcast and publishing through a Patreon subscription. To support, head to patreon.com slash liquidarchitecture. So my name is Tina Stefanu and I'm a a Greek-Australian artist with a background as a vocalist and I work with and across a diverse range of mediums, practices and labours. I'm based on Wurundjeri country out in Wattle Glen, Victoria and I co-create with a herd of local elderly horses and other creatures to create these performative uh, encounters and environments, as well as uh, creating live actions and moving images with voices, places, animals, instruments and people to find um, alternate forms of sharing art practice, uh, especially in such troubling times that we find ourselves in. In March, for the Liquid Architecture and McClelland exhibition, I presented a site-specific sonic assemblage which features soundings from a local Greek Orthodox church and an IGA supermarket, as well as my grandmother singing an iconic Australian song on a boat and my own playful uh, chimp-like vocalisations, which were being played through a a very child's craft tin can phone, which was made out of Dolmades tin cans, which Dolmades are a a very traditional uh, peasant uh, Greek food. I also think it's in Turkey as well, and it's made out of vine leaves and rice. Um, So the work also incorporated the entire sculpture park and uh, mapped a distance between uh, two sculptures that are already there. One of them is White Ape by Lisa Rowett and Zarathustra by Peter Schippenhain. So I created this phone with these all these sonic elements, which, yeah, created this strange uh, conversation between these two sculptures in the park. I hadn't been to McClellan Gallery before. I hadn't spent time in the sculpture park or the actual gallery space. So I think it's really interesting. You've got the building, which, you know, it's a human dominated environment with 
all of artful things and then you step out into the sculpture park and you have <laughs> all these artful things but it's in amongst trees and wildlife and sounds and smells but also like the suburban front kind of impinging on this um, swampland and, and bushy shrub. So it's really, um, it's a really interesting place. And so walking around, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I had no idea. So I was walking around um, very lost, which is really good. I think it's a good place to be and super exciting. That's the exciting part, not knowing. And then... Um, I got to Lisa's sculpture really much at the end of the park and I was just like, whoa, taken by this giant white ape in the middle of this Australian uh, bush. Uh, it was really, you know, monumental and uh, it was kind of unavoidable. I just kept returning to it. And so I was doing these nighttime rituals with with the chimp where I was singing with it, I was dancing with it, um, eating uh, my dinner with it. Um, and so I was like, well, okay, well, what is what is going on here? There's obviously a relationship that's forming between the symbolism, between my idea of ape, also ape, how ape sits in um, larger conversations. And then uh, there's this amazingly classical figure of a naked man, very big, it's like a titan, uh, in the middle of the lake at McClelland. It's, it's, he's alone and he's crying. He's, his face is in his hands whilst ducks are pooping on his head and, the, you know, there's the freeway behind him. And there was just something I thought comical and um, kind of like a poetic opportunity to link the, the Nietzschean figure, the, the Superman, in the middle of this psychology that he's basically unaware of with the chimp who's this monumental figure at the end of the park. And so by linking them, this new conversation came. And I was very excited by this, what it felt like an epiphany. And the work itself is called uh, Not Another Field Recording, dot, dot, The Holy Epiphany. So this epiphany <laughs> came upon me one night in the, I think it's a haunted studio there in McClelland. And, yeah, basically the next day ran up to the curator, Simon, who was really obliging and open and said, I want to I create a tin can phone conversation between these these two uh, figures, between these two worlds. And, yeah, and on top of that, I also wanted to insert my own uh, situatedness to the place. And so I work with my grandmother and she, I, I do lots of singing work with her and she sung... Um, the very iconic song You're the Voice by John Farnham. And so my grandmother, who has English as a second language, learning this song with her and getting her to sing it a cappella was really fun, a great connecting time. Uh, it's the joy of singing, uh, the joy of learning, but also it completely repositions the song. It shifts its uh pop cultural ecology and it moves into a body of a 80-year-old Greek woman who completely changes and, and morphs the melody, its cadences, its meaning by, by her singing it through her body. And so I placed 
this uh, new vocal ecology on a boat on the uh, the lake that's in the middle of the p- sculpture park with the naked man crying. <laughs> and so grandma's kind of like this, um, this alternate Greek siren who's kind of inserting herself into the space. And then by doing that, it adds another type of poetic texture to the naked man, the ape, and then you've got a grandma ecology revealing herself, an immigrant ecology revealing itself uh, in amongst these strange figures. So there were some other elements that was pretty uh, site-connected. I went and spent some time at the local Greek Orthodox Church in Frankston, which is not too far, 4Ks or something, from the the actual site. And I uh, contacted many priests in the area. I had conversations (laughs) and things like that. So that was really interesting to go and sit in the church uh, on a Sunday and record the rituals taking place. It's a really rich visual and sonic space, the Greek Orthodox Church. And having grown up in a Greek Orthodox context, I I suppose I took a lot of the um, sights and smells and sounds for granted because it became quite normalised. It's something that I was trying to rebel against. And so returning to that site, which is specific in from me as a as a Greek woman, but also specific to the location in which I was staying in being at McClelland and in that actual region. So by going back to that and by spending time with and sitting there and, and approaching it from a real uh, sonic awareness, a type of presence to the voice of things in this space, that enlivened a whole heap of other connections. And I thought of the supermarket <laughs> as another place that I might take have taken for granted, another uh, e- ecological intertwined space of sights and sounds and, and people and things. And so I went and recorded the local IGA uh, as well, which has its own rituals and repetitions and there's, you know, this uh, pop pop sounds with these songs in the background and whilst you're picking up fruit so freely and vegetables and and meats and cheeses like I mean it's so decadent so luxurious that you can walk into this space and this agricultural ecology for all you know with all the flaws and all the problems that comes with that and yet the access the privilege that I have to walk into that um, and to just pick an apple out of that that also started to I don't know create this other relationships to what happens at these sites, what food am I eating at these sites? So it's all good and well that we're talking about ecology, but what have I just, what types of ecologies have I taken in whilst I'm speaking about these things? What structures um, am I taking for granted? So I put the church, uh, and I'll just say from the onset, I'm not religious at all, um, but I'm more fascinated in its uh, possibility for hybrids. And so I merged the church and the supermarket as a soundtrack, which the chimp, which is the white ape at the McClellan, is actually listening to through the tin can phone. So that's one side of the artwork. Yeah, so that was a really interesting process. So I think in terms of site specificity, you're always speaking from somewhere to something, and it's really important to acknowledge that mapping that takes place when a body's in a space uh, and I'd, and sound is both 
situated and deeply material as well as a free radical (laughs) that's like moving uh, disembodied throughout the cosmos through particles and waves and all sorts of things that I don't have the language for. Um, So it's a great connecting medium, but I don't place it as a special one. It's not the only one. And I think if we place sound as some kind of holy force, uh, we run the risk of fetishizing it and commodifying it, which separates it from other expanded ways of thinking about forces in the world. Um, so whilst it's a, a really amazing medium, it also has its own uh, problematics in terms of sound art history and institutionalization. So I prefer to actually work with the term voice, the voice of things, the voice of the world, the singing of things, which moves beyond um, discipline and heads towards both embodiment and abstraction working together to bring us into more presence and to more connection with, with things we don't know, with things I can't say even now, um, without going into perhaps a super spiritual place, um, although I think that's fine as well. I have this memory of when I was a child when I, and I'm sure I encountered song or singing whilst I was in the womb, but the fir- like one of the first uh, very uh, abstract memories I have of encountering song for the first time was the bizarre emotional and unexplainable feelings that I felt as a child. What was that? What is this? What is this, uh, you know, sensual emotional force that's making me feel so small and so expanded at the same time? Almost like the feeling when you encounter the ocean or something. So the pleasure of feeling the feelings that voice and song and sound can invite is pretty amazing and that's a type of presence in action which I think is always site specific sight being the body is like the major place and as a vocalist you're consistently in a duet with set and setting from the sounds you produce to the sounds you embody and you know this kind of cyclical in and out um, which is very much linked to breath So I don't know if that speaks to the many thresholds. I think that voice, and I'll use voice particularly as a um, moving and grounded transversal uh, force in the world. So in terms of the phrase or the idea of giving voice, I don't think that's what I'm trying to do. Like in my practice, I don't think I'm trying to give voice to others. I think... Things are always telling us something all the time and I'm more interested in in what kind of uh, conversations can take place with all this telling that's going on, with all these voices that already exist and the many kind of possibilities for paradoxes and crisscrosses and, and, and new, new awarenesses to a form from the speaking with things. And things is an expanded thing, so that's like people, animals, concepts, you name it. So in terms of the work, there's like, you know, the church in the supermarket, the tin can phone. So that's like a cheap material, but then you've got these very high, high art figures of sculpture in the classical sense. You've got a boat and a speaker where grandmother's coming through. You have the tree and the and the string that connects the phones. There's a lot of dualisms. And yet what happens within that is um, 
a deeper coding that disarms these binaries and these like convenient categories of being human, non-human, thing, animate, inanimate, etc. Um, so everything's kind of bleeding into the next. Um, and I'm more interested in impolite, inconvenient and messy, messy connections and conundrums than whether I give voice so politely to something. <laughs> I should say all of this enables my voice um, as an artist, but first and foremost as, a, as an earth thing. And what for me in terms of interspecies, which is happening all the time, like there's nowhere that you touch that isn't implicated by other. So in thinking through those things, I wanted to place the work outside so not in the gallery space so it's you know in in this risky business in which i love the risky business of the art of the audience not necessarily picking up on my sonic elements that i've crafted and my art craft you know they they miss that because there's so much going on because it's in amongst a world of um sonifications and artfulness in nature but that doesn't matter that the audience doesn't pick up on these things because the audience is not just uh, the humans who sign up to see the artwork, but it's also the magpies and the trees and the, all the winds and forces that are affecting the string and affecting the way the sound is being produced that I can't control. I place it there and it does its thing. And their measuring stick <laughs> is not the same as the one we're using to view art. For me, that's super exciting and humbling and disrupts uh, human exceptionalism in art and elitisms of how we view art, where we view art. Um, in terms of interspecies, that's always part of my thinking about audience and collaborations, because it's always there anyway. <laughs> so the artist's tape is quite a, it's a new provocation that I'm playing with myself. And that goes back to like, yeah, finding aesthetic mimetic um, methods to disrupt my own relationship to the arts and the art world. So you have art and then you have art culture as well. Um, and it, it's a provocation on many fronts. It, it thinks on the role and the value of the artist in our socioeconomic, environmental and political climate. How can you not anyway? As well as what we do as artists to be part of certain cultures in certain ways and how far do we go and what are the ramifications of working in specific ways, especially like I just mentioned with human exceptionalism and also within wealthier elite cultural frameworks and standards. What have we embodied with working in a certain verticality towards a certain class standard? So the artist is ape performs with all these things, disrupts them at times, adapts, <laughs> but also is at times captured in a sort of, a, what do you call it, a culture zoo. So I'm kind of bringing that all forth by, by, by playing that. So on the other end of this tin can phone, yes, there is me doing a series of uh, impolite vocalisations that take on certain aspects of apes or our cousins. <laughs> so there's also playfulness. There's possibilities for new sorts of connections and materials. It's, it's also a way to hold up a mirror to these like contemporary market values. It's possibly a thinking that what can animals and plants and stars teach us about art, teach us about politics, 
teach us about new forms of togetherness and the universe, if we can go as, if I have the permission to go as big there. The Artist as Ape looks at, you know, the art world as a contradictory, uh, dis, disproportionate and, you know, at times often deeply unequal with different living and working conditions and standards for access, questions of class, etc. And also, like the effect, the real effect of what can, whilst we're talking about all these uh, wonderful things, what is actually the, the deeper structural things that art can enable and, you know, by extension, can it really happen in institutional contexts? Are there new forms that can take place? So the artist as ape plays with that, learns about that, lives with that, mimics things and brings things forth beyond the English language, beyond human patterns and, and polite sentences, is that word again, and works towards singing with unheard relations as a literal unheard relation to human. So finding these alliances, uh, interspecies alliances, but also through mimicry and through abstraction and through this playfulness of ideas and embodiment that uh, can maybe help us get out of a, a blasé about the world and find alternate ways of being and working parallel alongside all the stuff of the frameworks and the institution. There's so many uh, elements that are kind of interjecting and doing their own kind of artist as ape on me by disrupting my own <laughs> assemblage, which I find really beautiful. I do think sound or voice is inherently social in the sense that it has a relationship to the place that it's being generated from and the place it's it's being heard, although I, I, I'm careful to think about sound purely just in a human normative listening position and also sound as audibility. I think uh, sound is a force like air, vibration obviously, uh, so... So there is already always something taking place as a force in nature and how we work with it, I suppose, is where the interesting um, part comes in. But as I said, I don't place sound on some kind of hierarchy as, as it's always in conjunction and co-constructed with mm -hmm. a whole heap of other things. I suppose there's so many ways that we come to sound conceptually, historically, institutionally, uh, mythologically, spiritually, the list goes on. And so there's so many um, so many implications of relationships there. Yeah, I don't I can't see where it's not social and I'm not really sure how we can separate social practice from the from art making in general, to be honest. Um, whether it's alone, whether mm. you're sitting in a alone in a room making a painting, you're still working with materials that have been, forged from the ground or come through um you know exporting that people have had to handle so depends what we mean by by social is it like a social event well maybe there's not always a social event but I do think art making the ing part the making part is is an invitation for sociality 
In terms of sociality of sound, there's like a responsibility to sound as well in working with it because whilst it can wield wonderful connections, it can also other times be used as a weapon in terms of technologies and extractivism. So that's also mm-hmm. um, like a a consideration that I that I think about and hence turning towards voice provides perhaps a, um, I don't know, an immediate uh, sociality for me or an immediate connection to other forces outside of the human and also forces that come to being through animation and it's it's a co-constructed environment. I don't think that we can just as sound artists step back and I'm not saying that anyone is, but that we are solely responsible for that craft. So it's, yeah, there's a deep responsibility, I think, in thinking about those things. Obviously, you have to have the deep responsibility anyway in terms of site specificity, whose land are you on, etc. But sound is both connection and, and weapon, depending on where it is and the context of how it's used. So we were working collaboratively on the text and also I feel like it was like a support network that we formed because we started speaking uh, probably towards the end or middle middle to end uh, 2020, so in the midst of Melbourne's lockdown. And so by having, you know, this lovely conversation, meeting other artists and speaking with Joel, it was very enriching and it did begin the conversation of making with place and making with sound. What does this mean? What are the ramifications? And it also, by having this like regular contact, um, it created an atmosphere for the works to emerge from. But the works themselves weren't collaborative per se. It's more the atmosphere in generating this um, presentation on the day that was very collaborative. And I suppose in hearing about the other artists' practices, it uh, enabled me to figure out how I would like to contribute to the overall space, which influenced me to head outside of the gallery space and make something that was really entangled in the park and in the environment. I derive a lot of pleasure from the processes in my practice, working with animals, uh, working with my grandmother, working with my family. So the process is very uh, pleasurable and fun and challenging. So the challenge is really beautiful in order to find new ways of speaking with others in uh, all sorts of different contexts. So the process is, yeah, um, undeniably <laughs> the essence of, of the practice and the essence of the presentation. So, and yet the presentation is the sum of all those parts. So it's also quite a different register of pleasure to, uh, to share all of that accumulation of knowledge, of alternative knowledges as well. I think also... Um, In speaking specifically to the process of this project, so I got to spend, and I think so did some of the other artists, we got to go spend some time there separately in there's like an old artist studio on site, which has actually quite an eerie feeling about it. I think it's quite old. It's like a sandstone building. And the most beautiful thing about being there was at nighttime when there was no... um, 
people who were coming into the park to see the sculpture. So it was just me and this, you know, giant rhinoceros in the park and a giant ape in the park and a labyrinth under the moonlight. So it became very enchanting and I almost felt as if I was the only human in amongst this world that was already singing, that was already speaking and telling so many stories. And so how an artwork comes to be and how much intervention should the artist take in this environment became, um, you know, some of the questions that staying there enabled. And it's so exciting when you don't know (laughs) the answers to that. And I still don't know whether what I presented did it justice, to be honest. I just hope that it it, um, got an opportunity to entangle itself in amongst already what was already there. So, yeah. This recording was produced by Mara Schrettweger for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognise that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organisation for artists working with sound and listening. Support Liquid Architecture's podcast and publishing through a Patreon subscription. To support, head to patreon.com slash liquidarchitecture.